0: As I was listening to Jeff pray, I was just reminded of a prayer point. Uh, Jeff prayed helpfully for Scripture, and um, I just thought it'd be worth you guys, if you're able to remember through the week, to pray for Scripture. We have a, um, uh, over 200 kids that we teach down at the Oran Park Public School. Uh, there's been um, some disruption with Scripture, and uh, we have a big meeting with the principal Tuesday, I think, um, that Michael's going to be at. Um, I might choose to go with him. But essentially, the the principals found the other Scripture providers to be uh, unreliable. And in a school that's grown to 1,600 kids this year, um, not having classes covered is actually causing her a lot of grief. And um, so they're just in a point where she's really frustrated with Scripture. Um, Can I ask you to pray? In fact, we might just stop and pray now. Um, It's a really strategic ministry. Um, It's actually very understandable for her if People aren't taking their classes and they're not telling them in advance that it just is hugely disruptive. But can we just pray that God would superintend this wonderful opportunity we have in the public school down there? Is that okay? I just, I just remember when you were praying, Jeff, and I, I just thought it would be worth praying specifically into that. So do you mind if we do that now? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your wonderful provision, you've opened a door for us uh, to do scripture alongside the Refuge Baptist Church um, at Oren Park Public, Um, Lord, there are literally hundreds of children there that we have an opportunity to speak to fortnightly. Uh, We pray for Donna, the principal, amidst her frustration with irregular or unreliable providers. And we ask, Father, that you might make a way straight and clear for us to continue to announce the name of Jesus and that you might help Donna to find a way uh, to do that that does not cause additional stress into the life of that school. Father, we ask your mercy and guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I just thought that was really important to do, and thank you for your prayers. Uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 7 today, a passage that's just been beautifully read for us, uh, so we're, that's where we're going to be. And it's, it's almost like the start of a joke today, isn't it? Um, what happens when a general, a widow, and a prostitute meet Jesus? Jesus. I didn't didn't fly either in the first one, but that's okay. I'll change it for tonight. Uh, it, it seems like we've just lost jokes in our society. Does anyone tell jokes anymore? Does anyone hear a joke teller? It used to be a thing. I, I, like, just can you can you notice with me culturally that stuff has changed? We used to tell jokes. Don't you don't you agree? We just don't anymore at all. Maybe they're all memes or something that we're all. I don't know. Anyway, I'm sure social media. We can blame social media. It kills everything. So. Uh, we'll call it social, social media cancer. But anyway, here's the, uh, here's the one about the general, the widow, and the prostitute. And uh, I want you to see how Jesus engages with them. And uh, I'm hoping today, that we look at this, we'll be refreshed in our understanding of who Jesus is. In order to look at all these stories afresh, I want to take you to an Old Testament experience and then jump back and see what Jesus does. Now, the man on the screen is a Syrian general. And I want you to meet a Syrian general, not in the current day, but a thousand years before Jesus. The man's name is Naaman. And in order to check it out, we need to go to 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, you can read along there if you would like to, or you can just listen. Uh, But in 2 Kings chapter 5, we meet Naaman, who has had a successful military campaign against Israel. As part of the plunder that he's taken home, he's taken a young girl home from Israel, who's an Israelite girl, who's become his slave. He's come down with leprosy, as we heard the other day, an incurable skin disease. And as the young girl looks at her, she says, well, in Israel, someone could do something about that for you. And the guy goes, well, that'd be great. So he talks to his boss, the king, who writes a letter to the king of Israel to say, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you, can you please solve his leprosy? king Of Israel tears his clothes in distress and goes, What's this guy doing to me? Is this a pretext for war? He's baiting me up. Nobody can stop leprosy. And the prophet Elisha hears about it and sends to the king and says, Look, send him to me, and then you'll remember that there's a God in Israel. So Naaman comes to the prophet, and we pick it up in verse 9 of chapter 5. So Naaman went, to, went with his horses and chariots quite a big procession, and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, "'Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, "'and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed.' But Naaman went away angry and said, "'I thought that he would surely come out to me "'and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God "'and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. "'Are not Abana and Parphar, the rivers of Damascus, "'better than any of the waters of Israel?' Couldn't I have washed in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. What well, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Here's this man who's travelled all the way from Syria, and the prophet doesn't even meet him. He won't come out to him. That's incredibly insulting, isn't it? He's turned up with his whole entourage, and the man won't even come out and meet him. And he says, go and wash in the river. And the guy goes, i got better, I got better streams back in, uh, in Syria than your stinking Jordan. Okay, As if I'm going to do that. And so he turns it down. He doesn't want to act until his servant points out to him, look, would you have done something difficult if he'd asked you? And he goes, yeah. So if it's really easy, wouldn't you try that anyway? He goes, yeah, probably should do that. So he goes into the Jordan River, washes seven times, and he's miraculously healed. It's incredible, right? A foreign general meets the power of God. I want you to take that idea and then come with me. We're going to go to Luke chapter 7, and we're going to meet an incredible foreign general. Have a look, we're picking it up in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There was a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Now, I want you to see this man's remarkable. He's remarkable because he's trusted by Rome. Uh, The Roman army was very well organized into legions and then into companies like this, which a centurion would have headed up. Now, centurion's a hundred I was doing some reading through the week. It's probably he had 80 uh, 80 soldiers and probably about 20 servants who was tagging along, but it's, it's a group of 100. Now, everybody, obviously, wasn't made a centurion, so the Romans clearly trusted him. They said, you're in charge of 100 people. So he's a trusted man. That's a pretty remarkable thing in its own right. Secondly, it says he's loved by Israel. How do we know he's loved by Israel? He's an occupying soldier. That doesn't happen very often. They're not very often beloved, okay? And it says, well, the reason is that he built our synagogue. Now, just bear with me for a second. How many occupying soldiers... It also says he loves our nation. Love the nation. That's, that's the first thing. Who's going to love the nation? We're here to crush the nation, right? Loves our nation and built our synagogue. He actually invested in the worship of the local people. That would be like an American soldier in Afghanistan building a mosque, Are you with me? Are you getting the vibe of this? It's radical, okay? And so he's loved by Israel. They say, he deserves to have you do this, which says to us that he's probably a Gentile God-fearer. What that means is, he's a non-Jew who worships the God of Israel. Because I've got to tell you, that's a very small set, okay? There are not very many foreign centurions who worship the God of Israel. So he's a remarkable man. We, We see... What's remarkable about him? Have a a look at um, the second part of verse 6. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent some friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes. I tell that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So, what's this man grasped? What, what's he understood? Well, he understood something about his own worth. He doesn't remember. He doesn't even actually come to Jesus. He sends a delegation of the Jewish people from the sin, sin, to go and speak to him. So he doesn't feel worthy to come to Jesus. And then Jesus, on his way, he's heard the request, and he's coming to his house, and he goes. I'm not worthy, Jesus, to have you come into my house. You are great and I am nothing. Even though he's a Roman centurion, he feels as nothing before the Lord. He realises his actual status in life. So he's realised his own worth and then he's realised something extraordinary about the authority of Jesus. He says, I live in authority land. Okay, I have guys above me, they tell me to do stuff and I go do it. I got guys under me, I tell them, they go do it. You aren't under anyone. Are you with me? Jesus is under no one. And so he says all you need to do, Jesus, is to command it, and guess what? It'll happen. And guys, I want you to see that this centurion is so much like us, in the sense of all the other healings that we've seen have happened in proximity to Jesus. Are you with me? So Jesus is standing next to them, or Jesus touches them, or Jesus... Says to the man in the synagogue, even stretch out your hand. He's right there. Now, Jesus isn't right with us, is he? He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven right now. And so in a profound sense, this story is like us. We aren't in the presence of God in the sense of the presence of his son, Jesus, all the time. So the question is, what happens? What can Jesus do at distance from need? What can Jesus do at distance from need? Are you with me? Well, let's see. If we have a look, we can see what happens. Jesus speaks to the man in verse 9. He says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Oh, he doesn't speak to him. He was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd who followed him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Jesus is amazed. He says, this man understands something about me that no one else in Israel has grasped. The rest of you are looking at me and you see me do great stuff, and that's amazing. But this guy, he gets it. He gets that I rule over all and that I have authority in my word. He says, No, one, he doesn't have a peer in Israel. The foreign soldier is without peer in his faithfulness. That's extraordinary. And then Jesus does his usual amazing things. What happens? The, the, the friends go and they return home and they find what? The servant healed. What does it prove to us? Jesus can heal at distance by his word. Extraordinary, right? So my question is, will we show his humble trust without presumption? Will we go, Jesus, I trust you so much, but I count myself of no great worth? Do you see? I lift Jesus up and I put myself beneath him. And what he's left with is something wonderful, the praise of God. Because when that happens, what does everybody do? Everyone in the crowd who sees the boys go home, goes, that's amazing. Jesus just healed him without even going to his place. And they praise God. Praise happens. Tell you who else is praised. Jesus praises the man who has faith. Wouldn't it be great to hear Jesus' praise for our faith? The second story, the story about the widow... I'm going to start in a, uh, in a box. Uh, this is called a glove box. I hadn't met one of these before. Not your car, right? Um, a glove box. It's, it's a box that's got gloves built into it. And the idea is that you put your hands into the gloves so that you can touch the things inside that are deadly and dangerous and they won't get to you. Don't touch these things. They'll kill you is essentially what's going on. I want to take you to a story where we see don't touch this, it'll kill you. It's in... Uh, It's in 1 Chronicles, chapter 13, with a bloke called Uzzah. Uzzah. 1 Chronicles, chapter 13. Now, David has been trying to move the Ark of God into Jerusalem. Do you know about the Ark of God? Gold box. Inside it are the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and it's got some cherubim, seraphim. Someone will correct me. Cherubim yeah great No, everyone's going oh no not that one the other one great now I've got it now okay winged beasties are over the top of this right why does it matter this box is representative of the place where god says i will dwell where this is the concentrated presence of god on earth here and so god had given them some very specific plans for how to move this you needed to have rods through the rings they needed to be on the shoulders of people it needed to be carried by specific people by the Priests. Now I want you to see what happened. And 1 Chronicles 13, says, They moved the ark of God from Aminadab's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God with songs and harps and lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he's put his hand out on the ark. So he died there before God. And we go, what? It's a crazy story, right? It's a a phenomenal story. There's a celebrating procession. Everyone's playing musical instruments. The ark's going along. What was it on? A cart? Should it have been on a cart? Shouldn't have been on a cart? So it's going along on the cart. And then Uzzah decides, oh, whoops, better catch God. Wouldn't want God to fall on the ground. So he feels, I've got to intervene and save God. And in his presumptuousness, sorry, touching the ark, which he was not supposed to do, results in his death. Because God is holy and he is dangerous to sinners. Because that is a weird thing for us to get in our heads, right? God is holy, and he is dangerous to sinners. Now, what happens when the Son of God meets this widow? Let's have a look. We're going to uh, chapter uh, 7, verse 11 and following. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow And a large crowd from the town was with her. See, there's two crowds. It says a short time afterwards. I I don't know how short afterwards, but Luke links them together. So here's a crowd that's coming along with Jesus, full of faith. Did you see the incredible thing that happened when the centurions? That was amazing. Jesus is amazing. So they're full of faith and life, and they're traipsing after Jesus as they're going to Nain. Coming out of Nain is this crowd with a widow. Do you notice her situation? She was a widow, and she just lost who? Her eldest son, her only son. So effectively, she was going to be destitute, because who would look after her, right? She was in this very vulnerable situation. And this crowd that's coming out with her is full of death and mourning. It's a despairing crowd that follows the widow and the beer with the body on top. See the energy coming this way and the energy coming the other way. Yeah, it's a, what will happen when they meet? And so we see as we look at uh, verses thirteen and following. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, "Don't cry." Then she went up and touched. Then he went up, sorry, and touched the bier where they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, "Young man, I say to you, get up." The dead man sat up began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Because this is extraordinary, isn't it? It's extraordinary. Here's the really interesting thing. I don't know if you remember with the leprosy a while ago. If a clean person touches a leper, do you remember what happens to them? They become unclean. Do you remember that? If a clean person, spiritually clean person, touches a dead body, do you know what happens to them? They become unclean. What happened when the Sinful people touched the living God. They died. So here we go. Here's the living God touching a dead person. Are you with me? What's going to happen? Well, what happens? Life. Life happens. Do you see? It's extraordinary. God isn't dangerous anymore. He's bringing restoration. He's bringing wholeness. He's bringing healing. God, in the person of his son Jesus, is all about life. Do you see that? It's beautiful, isn't it? And so we see Jesus' compassion. He looks at the woman. He cares for her. He says, woman, don't cry. Don't cry. He cares. And so we might know that God's powerful. And the question that we have is, God, I know you're powerful. The question is, do you care? And in the person of his son, right there in that place, she hears the love and the compassion of God. It's beautiful, isn't it? And then we see the authority of Jesus. He speaks to the dead man. Now, you can spend a lot of time in a mortuary chatting away for as long as you want, and nothing is going to happen because they're dead. They're not there anymore. The Son of God speaks to the dead man, and he sits up and begins talking, which is extraordinary. I don't know why he's talking. I don't know what he's talking about, but he's got lots to say all of a sudden. And Jesus gives him back to his mother. How beautiful, right? It's beautiful. And so here, Jesus is shown to be, in verses 16 and 17, have a look. They're both, they were all filled with awe, as you would be, and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Jesus is awesome. There's no debating that. He's awesome and he's caring. How wonderful. Imagine the vibe. Celebration faith crowd meets death mourning crowd. Dead body, sitting up and talking in the middle, reconciled mother and son, everybody goes ballistic. Are you with me? It's a pretty good story, isn't it? I want to be with that bloke. I want to be with Jesus. He's awesome, and he's caring, and he's powerful. And we see the reversal of death and defilement in the Son of God on earth. And we see wonderfully his provision, his care for this woman when her son is restored. How beautiful. How beautiful. Let's go to the third story. In order to get there, we need to take an interesting uh, diversion um, into an R-rated piece of the Old Testament. Do I have your attention now? What? What are we doing? Uh, it's about Israel, so take a deep breath. But, but here's the thing. We're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 16. And um, I know you're all flipping there quietly now at the moment to check it out, but it is, it is a truly terrible passage. Okay, I want to tell you the story very briefly. In Ezekiel 16, God is speaking through the prophet to his people. And he says, Israel, when I found you, you were like a little baby kicking about in the blood. I picked you up and I loved you. I washed you. I clothed you. I brought you up. I fed you. You matured and you became beautiful and I cared for you. And then as you came into maturity, in response to all of my faithfulness and my love, you turned into a prostitute and went to the gods of the nations. It is a devastating picture of Israel's unfaithfulness. It's a devastating picture of Israel's unfaithfulness, that they would turn away from this God who saved them, cared for them, created the nation and worship other gods. They scorned the love of God. They lusted for other lovers, the the gods of the nations. And they were unrepentant in their rejection of God. It is a terrible picture of Israel's unfaithfulness. So to be a prostitute isn't just a bad thing in society. It's also the image of Israel being unfaithful. Are you with me? All right. Come with me to chapter 7, we're going to skip over the bit about John the Baptist, and go to verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. They used to lie down with their head next to the table and their feet sticking out. Okay, that's what's happening. So he's lying down and eating with a hand, probably right hand, probably that way. Uh, Anyway, he's lying down, okay? And at that point, we see somebody else turn up. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And you think to yourself, well, she's a sinful woman. Does that mean that she's a prostitute? Yeah, really does. That, that, that's the way of describing her. She was a prostitute. And she comes into the house, a feasting house. But whose house was it? A Pharisee's house. I can assure you she had never been in his house before. Okay, But she was so compelled, despite her sinfulness, she was so compelled as a seeker, she had to be with Jesus. And so she's blind, I think, to all the other people around, and she has eyes just for Jesus. Her eyes flood with tears. Her tears pour in his feet, and realising that she's wet his feet, she takes her hair down and wipes his feet with her hair. Now, to take her hair out was actually a sign of being a wanton woman as well, so it kind of doubles down on her appearance of being a sinful woman. Now, just quietly, I don't know what it would feel like to be Jesus. I, I get really ticklish, I suspect, if someone's wiping... Anyway, that's just... I, I just got to think about that part of the, the story, right? It's just bizarre. But okay, here we go. So here's this woman. She's wet his feet with tears, wiped it with her hair. What, what is going on? And then she's poured perfume on them. The whole place floods with the smell of this perfume. What, what happens next? Well, Simon, whose house it is, thinks a couple of things. He thinks, <laughs> Jesus, you don't know what's going on. You don't know who this woman is. He thinks that Jesus lacks insight, and he thinks that he sees correctly. He thinks that he sees correctly. What I want you to see is he's wrong on both counts. Have a look at verse 39 and following. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Incidentally, do you remember the, uh, the bit with Jesus at the well in John 4? The woman at the well? Did Jesus know about the sinful woman? The one that you're with isn't your husband, and in fact you've had five husbands. Do you remember that? Is, did Jesus know stuff? Yeah. Of course he does, right? But this man thinks, no, no, I've got Jesus. I've got Jesus. He doesn't know what's going on here. Jesus answered him, hey, uh, Simon, oh, I have something to tell you. Be afraid if you're Simon, right? Oh, tell me, teacher, he said. Well, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One of them owed him 500 denarii, uh, denarii is about a day's wages, 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. This is really interesting, guys. It's a fascinating story. Because here's the thing. Jesus didn't lack insight. Jesus alone sees clearly what's happening in this room. Jesus alone sees clearly what's happening here. And while Simon thinks he sees correctly, in answering Jesus' question, he gains insight he didn't have before. Have a look at the way Jesus brings it into land in verses 44 and following. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, uh, sorry, Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I think the answer is, yes, Simon had seen her before, but he'd never seen her before. He hadn't looked properly, right? New eyes. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The keys to this picture of the story here is faith. She has extraordinary faith in Jesus, has eyes only for Jesus, pursues Jesus, and what he gives her is the thing that she longs more than anything. Nothing else. Not her precious perfume. No, no, pour it out on Jesus because he can provide the one thing I can't buy anywhere. The cleansing of my soul. And so what do we see in this story This is so amazing once you get this other picture. Here's the model to the righteous in Israel, and it's a faith-filled prostitute. Are are you with me? In In the Pharisee's house, the picture of faith is a repentant prostitute. How brilliant is that? And then Jesus says to her, go in peace. Essentially, he pronounces a blessing on her, shalom. You are right with God now. You can leave. No, it's extraordinary, right? It's extraordinary. Not the Pharisee, but the prostitute goes home forgiven. Praise God. I want us to think this morning that the size of our debt determines our worship. The size of our debt determines our worship. Let, let, me, let me think with you for a second about what God had to forgive us. It says in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. In in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In order to be right with God, Jesus had to die. Your sin was enough that it caused the death of the Son of God. That's our debt. So here's the question, guys. Do we see our debt? Do we see our debt? Because if my debt is small, God should be thankful I'm on his team. Because I'm pretty good, right? It would be arrogant to say that God should be thankful for me. If, on the other hand, I see my debt correctly, and I realize it costs the Son of God his life, then I want to say I will be thankful. I will be thankful for the mercy of God. And if I think God's lucky to have me on his team then I will measure out my offering to God with a little eyedropper and I'll go, God, you should be really thankful for that. I hope you appreciate it. It costs me nothing to do this. Whereas if we recognize that our whole life is dependent on Jesus and his sacrifice, then we would take our alabaster jar of perfume and smash it, pour it all over the feet of the Son of God. Are you with me? Everything she has before Jesus. Why? It's not extravagant, it's appropriate. Does our offering reflect the weight of our debt? I want to suggest to you it does, and that should cause us to reflect, shouldn't it? For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. How much did she pour out? Everything she had. So what do we do with these interactions? What do they teach us? Well, from the centurion, I hope that we learn Jesus can be trusted at distance. Is that right? He He's powerful. He has authority at distance. But we need to maintain our humility before God. From the widow, what do we learn? The God who is there will offer comfort to us. The God who is there will offer comfort to us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. He will never leave us or forsake us. He said he will send his comforter to be with us. May we know and love and experience the comfort of Jesus. And from the prostitute, we learn mercy, don't we? We learn the mercy of God and we learn the right response to mercy is worship. Pouring out our lives in recognition Of what God has done for us. So do we want to know the praise of God? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done for your faith. Do we want to know the provision of God? Do we want to know the peace of God? Then we need to know the forgiveness of God, and we need to know that the one who had the bigger debt forgiven is the one who will love the most. Brothers and sisters, it isn't that we don't have a debt. It's that we don't see it properly. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, there are people sitting right here this morning who need to know that you can be trusted at distance and that you're powerful. Strengthen their faith. There are men and women sitting here this morning, Father, who know your power but wonder about your care. Father, may they know and experience your comfort this morning. Lord, there are some of us here this morning who feel crushed by our sin and our failure and our shortfall before you. Father, may we know the joy and the cleansing of forgiveness. We thank you for the beauty of your son. We thank you for who he reveals you to be. And Father, we pray that we might pour out our lives in worship to him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is good, you reckon? I love preaching through Luke. I'm just absolutely loving seeing how he engages uh, with the people uh, he meets. I'd love you to take out your Care and Connect cards. Uh, if you don't have one, we'd love to get you one. Um, so uh, Lauren is going if, to... If you want to put your hand up if you'd like to get one, that'd be great. Why would you like to get one? If you're new, we would love for you, uh, if you're new, to look out for someone with that green uh, new or newish badge on. Uh, they will help you get connected here at New Life. Or alternatively, you can just tick the box that's here that says, I'd like to let you know I'm new, and people do this every week. Give us your email address, and we'll sign you up for our newsletter. That'd be fantastic. But many of you have come for a while. Why do I need to fill in a Care and Connect card? I want to save paper. Can I say I'm happy paying for it? It's not a problem. Here's why we like to hear from you. We want to know your prayer points. We want to pray with you. I'd love to hear your feedback on the sermon if you've got questions or things that you'd like to ask. But we have two teams that pray on a Monday morning. I meet with a beautiful team led by Lauren. Uh, at what time do we meet, Lauren? 830 it's a, it's, a cracking, it's a cracking time to meet tomorrow morning. Uh, that's the pastoral care team, and we love praying for you, church. So please, if you'd like them to pray, you can put it in the box that's got the pastoral care team on it. I then meet with the staff at 9.30, and we pray as well. We would love to stand with you and to pray for you. So if there's things going on in your life, please take the opportunity to, to fill those in. I'm going to do mine now before we get to our final song. So I'll give you some time to do that now.